Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to Sunday morning worship here at Essex Church, where Kensington Unitarians have their spiritual home. Ours is a community created by all those who walk through our doors, and we bid you welcome whoever, whatever, however you are this morning. We all bring, don't we, the very stuff of our lives to a time of togetherness like this. And through our singing and our silences, our words and our presence here this morning, we seek that which we most need, be that peace for the troubled, inspiration for the down at heart, acceptance for the struggling, a chance to share perhaps for the joyous. Whatever version of the human story you bring with you here today, and I wonder what your particular story might be, here is an opportunity for you to be in connection with yourself and with one another and with that which you hold to be divine. In case you hadn't guessed, this morning's service has been created as a celebration of nature's gifts, a little version of a harvest festival, an opportunity to celebrate one with another and to share our good fortune with others. Thank you so much, both Stephanie and Michaela, for making all of this happen. And at the end of today's service, you are very welcome to help yourself to some fruit to take home with you. It seems likely, doesn't it, that from the earliest times of humanity, here on earth, people have gathered together at times of harvest to celebrate and give thanks. And in ancient times, such acts of gratitude were probably an attempt to please the gods so that we would receive from them again. In a liberal religious community such as ours... A harvest festival can remind us of our own good fortune. It can connect us once more with our Mother Earth and upon which we all live. And it can help us to take issues of justice, compassion and love into our hearts and then out there into the world. And in that spirit of justice, compassion and love, I welcome you this autumn morning. The Buddha um, taught that even though we were to use this candle light, this candle flame, to light a thousand other candles, this small flame would not be diminished in the slightest. And we light this chalice flame each week to connect us with Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist communities all around the world, that its small flame of freedom might burn brightly in all our hearts. And in this time of prayer, I'm thinking of the autumn equinox that happened yesterday, that point in the year when day and night are of equal length, a time of balancing, waiting almost till the earth spins onwards and our days become shorter and our nights longer here in the northern hemisphere. Let us pray. Though many of us may be unsure who or what we pray to, and yet we pray to that which is perhaps deep within us and greater than everything, the eternal, infinite God of all lovingness, that which inspires us to be greater 
than we might otherwise be, that which accepts us as we are, with all our faults and frailties. This autumn time, let us give thanks for the abundance of our natural world, for the crops of the harvest time that delight us with their plenty. May each of us find something for which we can give thanks, each and every day of our lives, however tough the road we must travel. As our planet slowly but steadily moves towards a time of less light here in the north, may we find ways to keep our light burning within, through our work or our hobbies, through connections with one another, through the comfort of a warm hearth, created within our homes. And as we hear the troubles of our wider world, especially all those affected by the attack in Nairobi, by ongoing sectarian violence in Iraq, for the people of Syria and their wider region, all who yearn for peace, let us be the people who hold hope in our hearts and who by the beauty of our own lives bring some counterbalancing acts of love into our world. At this turning point of the year, let us find balance in the known and the unknown, the inner and the outer, the light and the shadow, the seen and the unseen, And may we this day know a love that transcends all human limitation. A love that fills us and spills from us and connects us one and all with each other and with our God and with our wider world. And may this be so for the greater good of all. Amen. I wish the person who wrote this story down, Bill Darlison, was here to tell it to you because he tells a great story. And he, he gets that voice sometimes. This is from a book of his. He's a Unitarian minister, who was at one time our minister in Dublin. This is a collection of stories from the world's uh, spiritual traditions. And this one needs one of those biblical kind of voices. It's called The Unfruitful Tree. A farmer it is said, had a brother in a town who was a gardener and who possessed a magnificent orchard full of the finest fruit trees so that his skill and his beautiful trees and his scrumptious apples were famous everywhere. And one day that farmer went into town to visit his brother and was astonished at the rows of beautiful trees so neatly laid out, so luscious in their fruits. Look, my brother, said the gardener, I will give you an apple tree, the best from my garden, and you and your children and your children's children shall enjoy it. And so it was that the gardener called his workers and ordered them to take up a tree and carry it to the brother's farm. And they did so, and the very next morning the farmer began to wonder where he should plant that magnificent tree. If I plant it on the hill, he said to himself, or the wind might catch it and shake down the delicious fruit before I'm there to catch it. 
And if I plant it close to the road, well, the passers-by will see it and they'll rob me of its luscious apples. But if I plant it too near to the door of my house, my servants or even the children might pick the fruit. So after he thought the matter over very carefully, he planted the tree behind his barn, saying to himself, hmm, prying thieves will not think to look behind the barn for this apple tree. And behold, the tree bore neither fruit nor blossoms, the first year nor the second. And then the farmer sent for his brother the gardener and reproached him angrily, saying, you've deceived me, you've given me a barren tree instead of a fruitful one. For behold, it's the third year, and still it brings forth nothing but leaves. And then the gardener saw where the tree was planted, laughed and said, You've planted the tree where it's exposed to cold winds. There's neither sun nor warmth. How then could you expect flowers and fruit? You have planted this tree with a greedy and suspicious heart. How then could you expect to reap a rich and generous harvest? And that is the story of the suspicious farmer and his apple tree. The following reading is based on the words by T.O. Bishop from his blog, Bishop in the Grove. We now celebrate the autumn equinox. Now is the time to strengthen our practice in harvesting the light. Now is the time to find ways of rekindling the sun inside our hearts. For in the coming months, the light of the sky must wane. And so we are called to light a fire within and to harvest the light all around us. Begin with the recognition that we are connected to the land, to the cycle of the seasons, and make a point of remembering this each day. We are not separate from the life of our planet. She orbits within us and we within her. Our living earth provides so many opportunities to experience reverence and worship. Our fellow beings touch our lives as we touch theirs. May we pray with a warm fire in our bellies and a gentle smile on our lips at this time of autumn equinox. May we harvest the light and keep it burning brightly in our hearts so that when the deepest, darkest of winter is upon us, we will remember the summer sun. And so the cycles continue. And so the earth is blessed. Leading worship and, um, and preaching sermons are great privileges. When I, when I first started leading worship, I was still a teacher of disturbed teenagers. And after a while, somebody asked me which I preferred, teaching or preaching. And at that point, it was still about 50-50. 
I loved both activities, but at the time, and this is true even to this day, nobody has thrown a chair at me when I've been preaching. (laughs) Whereas that's happened more than once in my teaching career, that I've had to dodge a hurtling chair or textbook. So keep hold of your hymn books now in case you feel the need to throw something at me today because I'm heading off into controversial waters. There is a concept in a liberal church such as ours which is called freedom of the pulpit, which means that a minister is entitled to say what they feel moved to say and their words will not necessarily reflect the views of their congregation or indeed its trustees. But there's also an unwritten rule which advises ministers of of religion to avoid endorsing or condemning any particular political party. And today I'm going to break that rule a little bit. So have your hymn books at the ready, team. I am trained in ducking and weaving. Because today I have to say that if our Secretary of State for Education, Michael Gove, were to walk through this door right now, it would be me throwing the hymn book at him. And what has he done to annoy me so? The list is long. I have to be honest, but today I'm going to focus on his most recent blunder, which um, was to visit a food bank run by the Trussell Trust volunteers in his Surrey Heath constituency just a couple of weeks ago. After his visit, instead of perhaps praising the volunteers or the organisation or expressing some humility along the lines of, there but for the grace of God go I, no, he took the opportunity to take another swipe at the poor people who have to use the food bank services. He was quoted as saying that the financial pressures which force people to go to food banks, and I quote, are often the result of decisions that they have taken which mean they are not best able to manage their finances. This comment made my blood boil even though the odd thing is that on one level I agree with him and I know what he's saying is true. People living on low incomes do find budgeting difficult and can make poor decisions. But why is that? Michael Gove's answer is a self-righteous, everyone should pull their socks up kind of message that shows no understanding of what it is like to be poor, no understanding of how well-nigh impossible it is to climb out of poverty once you are trapped in it. Another answer came for me in the shape of a book published, interestingly, in the same week as our Secretary of State's visit to some of the less fortunate people living in his constituency. The book is called Scarcity, It's written, um, co-authored by uh, two writers, Eldar Shafir, a Princeton uh, psychologist, and Sendil Malayanathan, an economist from Harvard. And I'm quoting now from a New Statesman blog written by Sam Sam Sims, who is a researcher, apparently, at the Institute for Government. Sam writes that the authors of this book, Scarcity, investigate how the feeling of having too little affects the way that we think. They they report experiment after experiment 
demonstrating that a severe lack of time, friends or money systematically impairs our ability to focus, make decisions and control our impulses. These are all pretty important skills when you're trying to develop and then stick to a tight budget, as we all know well. Their findings are remarkably general and the effects are severe. In one study, they found that prompting poor people to think about money before they conducted a reasoning task reduced their cognitive abilities by about the same amount as missing a whole night's sleep. Now, that's a remarkable finding, and this is still Sam that I'm quoting. I probably couldn't tie my own shoelaces in the morning if I missed a whole night's sleep. What's worse, Sam writes, the feeling of scarcity causes us to focus on our most pressing needs to the point where we disregard less immediate concerns. This tunnelling effect for which Shafir and Mulanayanathan present a wealth of evidence helps explain why poor people, be they in Manchester or in Mumbai, regularly take out payday loans at exorbitant interest rates. Considerations about the additional costs of paying back a loan like that fall outside of that tunnel vision and end up dragging people into further financial trouble, trapping them in scarcity. And that's the end of the quotation. It's back to my rant now. So Michael Gove's suggestion that poor people need help in learning how to budget is way off the mark as far as I'm concerned. Because when we are trapped in scarcity, then we no longer think straight. We are then, as psychologists would tell us, cognitively impaired. We just don't think straight. And this applies to anyone who feels a severe lack of anything. And I wonder what lacks of this nature you have felt in your own life. I certainly know the one about lack of time. Think of it for a moment, lack of money, lack of friendships, connection with others, lack of time. At these moments, we cease to be capable beings and we need help. And we need help, be it from those around us or from our wider society, help to get both our thinking and our circumstances back in balance because only then are we going to make rational decisions about our future And isn't that the kind of society we want to live in, where we actually help one another? Not from a holier-than-thou, top-down kind of charity, but from a deep understanding that it could be us that needed help, if only life circumstances were to be slightly altered. So is it wrong of me to wish that our Secretary for State could experience the grim reality in his own life of not having any money or resources whatsoever of having to rely on charitable handouts to feed his children, or of making lousy long-term decisions in order to feed an immediate need. Okay, that's my rant over. I'm not going to mention him again today. I shall attempt to avoid political topics in future, and I'll listen to any of you who want to put forward an alternative view. I shall make it my spiritual practice to love and accept all politicians with right-wing views. (laughs) Breathe, relax, breathe, relax. Ah, where were we? Harvest time. Look at our display, lovingly created, 
Thank you to all of you who brought your contributions. Do not worry if you didn't bring anything. Make sure you take something with you, be it just an apple today. And it does feel like an abundant harvest, I think. Well, for me, anyway, this autumn. Is anyone else sharing my delight in this year's crop of berries on the trees? There are conkers about to fall in the park. And has anyone else noticed just how many daddy long legs there are this year? Or is it just that they are all intent on getting into my flat when I leave the windows open? For those of you from other lands, they're those things with the long legs, where their legs drop off at a moment's notice. <laughs> Let's think again of that ancient need to give thanks to the God, to the providers of all that is. For in a way, that's just what we're doing here today. Such yearnings towards gratitude understand, don't they, the flip side of harvest time. They understand the possibility of scarcity. Because bountiful though Mother Nature is, if there is a shortage of water or a change in temperature or an increase in plant or animal diseases, then our harvests may fail. Even in temperate lands such as this, here in the British Isles, famines occurred regularly throughout the Middle Ages, and it was only in the late 1840s in Ireland where one million people are estimated to have died as a result of the potato famine. That's not so long ago, and what a figure. This is the nature of life here on Earth. There always has been and there always will be the haves and the have-nots. And people will always disagree about what is an appropriate way to spend what we have. Much has been written over the centuries about Jesus' words. Do you remember them? The poor will always be with you. He said those words when his followers were remonstrating with Mary Magdalene for anointing Jesus' feet with costly oils when the money could have been used to feed the hungry. Now, how to spend wisely is not a new concern. Many, many years ago now, one Christmas, I went to visit the family of a 13-year-old boy who'd just been released from youth custody where he'd spent two years locked up after committing a very violent act. I was visiting that family to arrange for him to come to my school in January once the Christmas holidays were over. It was a poor home. The boy's mother had other children. She was having to deal with her own shame at her son's hideous error. And they had all had to move because it was feared that their previous neighbours would not accept that boy back into their neighbourhood. Their home did not have carpets or light shades or proper curtains, but it did have a Christmas tree and a big pile of presents, including many presents for this 13-year-old boy just out of jail. His mum told me of how much she'd spent on Christmas presents that year. She'd brought things out of a catalogue and it would probably take, she said, the whole year to pay it back. And she said it quite proudly. She wanted her kids to have a good Christmas. And when I left that house, I sat for a while in my car and I cried. And I cried for 101 reasons. 
I cried because of the nasty, judging, middle-class bit of me that compared what that woman had spent on her children for Christmas with what I'd spent, which was far less, on my own children. I wanted her to value a carpet or a light shade or a curtain over a pile of presents for children, particularly one who'd behaved as badly as her son. How dare I judge another human being's decisions in this way? How could I know what it's like to live her life and make her choices? I cried for everyone who has to live a tough life in a tough world. And I cried because there was so little I could do to bridge that great divide between that family and my own. And that was 25 years ago, and it it saddens me now to know that the gulf between rich and poor has widened again in our society in recent years, rather than reduced. I said I wouldn't mention him again. But after a week of thinking about these things, these issues, I've come to a serious realisation, and I wonder if this makes sense to you. I've decided that inside me is an unpleasant, judging character that holds some views in common with various right-wing politicians. It's my inner Michael Gove, if you like. The part of me that judged that struggling mother all those years ago. The part of me that fails to seek a way of balance and justice in this unbalanced and unjust world of ours. And that part of me that is incapable still of putting myself in other people's shoes. And so, may I be reminded of my own good fortune. May I never forget the sheer good luck that gave me the life I'm living today. May I never forget the reality that we all share a common existence here on earth, ever bound in community, one with another. We build on foundations we did not lay. We warm ourselves at fires we did not light. We sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. We drink from wells we did not dig. Our lives are full of gifts from persons we do not even know. And we are ever bound in community. And so be it. Amen. May the blessings of this harvest time be with us. May we reach out to those in need and may our own yearnings for assistance be met with good grace and with generosity of spirit, now and always. Amen. Go well and blessed be.